Long ago, in a place named Serendipo, a king lived with his three sons, and he hoped his princes would have the best of everything. However, he couldn't just simply leave his sons with power and wealth. He had to also instill the virtues important to the delicate balance such a position would require, education being the most important of those virtues. The three princes excelled academically. They were very studious, and the royal tutors were pleased. The king tested his sons. He proposed he live in the shadows and just give up his throne. Each of the three princes declined, and they praised the king's wisdom and his ability to rule. And while it pleased the king, he felt the prince's education may have been entirely privileged and quite sheltered. Or maybe he figured they were full of shit. I mean, come on, not one of them wanted to take the throne. Either way, the king pretended to be angry, and he cast the princes away from Serendipo for some real-life experience. The three princes were indeed wise, but it was their skills and observation that had served them well thus far. The three princes knew how important education was to their father, but they also knew of his desire for perfection. The princes observed the king's penchant for vanity and saw how their father could never admit failure or fault. The princes knew that if one had accepted the offer from the king to take over the throne, he would have been deeply insulted, and you know, instead they got a free vacation, simply by paying attention. After a long voyage, the three princes arrived in a foreign land. They became keenly aware and familiar with their environment, taking it all in, from the dirt beneath their feet to the air above them. They walked and watched, listened and smelled. The princes saw a merchant who said he lost his camel. The princes asked if the camel was lame, blind in one eye, missing a tooth, carrying honey, butter, and a pregnant woman. The hopeful merchant asked where they saw his camel. The princes said that they had not seen the camel, nor the woman. This went on for quite some time. Finally, the merchant just decided they were thieves and brought them before the emperor. The emperor demanded to know how they could give such an accurate description, despite having never seen the animal. Each prince explained, Grass was eaten from the side of the road that was less green. The camel must be blind in one eye, unable to see the lush grass, just steps away, and bits of that grass littered the road. The camel had clearly lost some of his meal through the gap from a missing tooth. Three of the camel's feet made prints, and the fourth made a path. There was flies on one side and ants on the other. The princess could only come up with one explanation for all of that. Lame camel, dripping butter for the ants and honey for the flies. And nearby was a wet patch of dirt with some footprints and a handprint. It was urine. And that's where the pregnant woman must have squatted down to relieve herself and used her hand to steady herself as she stood back up. I won't tell you how they came to the conclusion it was urine. Lucky for the princess, the trial was interrupted by a traveler who had found an old lame camel wandering the desert, and the pregnant woman was nearby. The emperor spared the princes and actually made them his advisors. He lavished them with riches. The princes lived an adventurous life and enjoyed many fortuitous endeavors. Opportunistic observations? Or are they just damn lucky? Serendipity was the word Horace Walpole wrote when he was searching for a word to describe this sort of fortuitous accident. A word to describe accidentally finding something amazingly beneficial while you were really just looking for something else completely. A serendipitous fortune. Is it lucky in life or make your own luck? Coincidence? Fate? 
Or is this something that could be manifested through clever and acute observations? Some might say it's intuition, and intuition can't really be separated from general observation anyways. I mean, at least not scientifically. So it's not something we'll ever actually know, but, you know, it's cool to talk about. Observation can be tuned and learned, but can intuition? Even the best poker players rely on a little luck. It's not all skill. And reading people isn't just for cards. Sometimes it's a seemingly natural skill that you find in people with, like, PTSD or past traumatic experiences, victims of violent crime, domestic abuse. You get what I'm saying. When you think about it that way, it's more of a defense mechanism. And it's mostly attributed to like a hypervigilant personality. They've been through a lot. They tend to see the outcomes of situations and identify danger much, much more quickly based on interruptions and learned behavior patterns. And observation is really an entire mental process in which knowledge is produced. The godfather of neuroscience, Wilfred Trotter, said, Knowledge comes from noticing resemblances and recurrences in the events that happen around us. For centuries, con men and women have used opportunistic observation to mark their victims. Gaston Bullock Means was one of America's most notorious confidence men. J. Edgar Hoover called him the most amazing figure in contemporary criminal history. Like, I wouldn't say amazing, so uh, settle down, J. Edgar. I'm going to tell you the story of how he got away with murder and tried to swindle my great-great-grandma's rich uncle out of millions. Hey there, prairie people. Welcome to Little Crimes on the Prairie. I'm just going to let you guys know I'm making some gradual changes to the show, so please bear with me as I make those adjustments. I don't have like a whole team that produces this podcast. It's literally just me and those who choose to participate and help me out. It's a lot of work and I do it because this project is really, really important to me. So with that said, hopefully you guys won't notice too much. And if you'd like to become a sponsor or just support the podcast, I'm working on my website and hopefully I can get everything updated with sponsorship information really soon. I'm working on the website because I am scrapping Patreon. It's just one extra thing that people message me about that they don't understand. And honestly, I don't have time to do like a whole nother thing. So I'm just going to be making it a little bit more simple, start rolling out exclusive content. Once we get everything updated with the website, we'll just offer the exclusive content for members on our website. Should be able to just subscribe there and not have to worry about going to a whole different place. So hopefully I make it a little bit easier for you guys. And I'm hoping by the new year we can have most of these goals completed. And there's a couple other projects that I'm working on as well. And you'll hear about those eventually. But for now, I think that covers the business. And I'll get to the story. This episode is brought to you by Wild Gallery. Wild Gallery is the only gallery in Austin, Texas that features incredible artwork created exclusively by Native American artists. This high quality original artwork is more than aesthetic. These are statement pieces. Go to Wild Gallery, that's W-Y-L-D dot gallery, and take a stroll on the wild side. When you support Native American artists, you're allowing the cultivation of opportunities, careers, and livelihoods. 
These artists inspire their communities to rise up and get involved. The collective creators in Native American communities are doing more than just inspiring awareness. They are crucial to the momentum of the missing and murdered Indigenous women movement. Indigenous artisans create more than a picture to look at. They lend their voices to their communities. For example, J. Nicole Hatfield, a featured artist at wild.gallery, has an amazing piece called Sacred. This somber piece is a celebration of Native American women. Native American women are 10 times more likely than the rest of the population to be murdered or end up missing. Artists like J. Nicole Hatfield offer the sacredness and also the reality of Native American culture, and it's displayed beautifully in her art. To offer your support to these Native American artists who are so vital in their communities, vital in getting the message out, go to Wild Gallery and get inspired. You won't be disappointed. This artwork is amazing. I mean, the holidays are just around the corner and you're going to find that perfect gift at wild.gallery. That's W-Y-L-D.gallery. So occasionally I shake the old family tree and a few nuts fall out. Now, Gaston Means isn't part of my family tree, but he is definitely a nut. This megalomaniac was found hiding among one of the branches in my sequoia of a family tree. In the last episode, I talked about fate. And in this one, I told you about serendipity. They are related in the sense that fate is predetermined and serendipity is basically just doing what you were already doing and finding something great. They're also different because serendipity can be staged, while fate, or the idea of it anyway, isn't really pliable. Some people are capable of elaborate behind-the-scenes plotting. They con their way into the good graces of people with money, power, fame, or just about anything that seems beneficial to them. Con man is short for confidence man. Because, let's be honest, it takes a whole lot of goddamn confidence to pull off some of these schemes. Modern-day catfish and scammers are in the same genre, obviously, It's not fate that brings them to these opportunities, and they're going to try to make you believe that it is. It's their skills and observation, human nature, and their ability to create chaos and confusion. It gives them an advantage. But who knows? Maybe that was their fate all along, to teach people a life lesson in trust. Maybe it's God's will that cons lack the conscience and morals of regular society. Most end up in jail or on the receiving end of revenge. Is it free will or is it fate? And that's something we'll never know for sure. But we can assume that if it's too good to be true, it usually is. It used to be a lot harder to read people before we all started sharing everything on social media, every intimate detail of our lives. Today, Gaston Means would be like The Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belafort, or Catch Me If You Can, Frank Abagnale. He was an associate of Jess Smith and President Harding's Ohio gang. He was an extortionist and a blackmailer. He was a forger and a fraud on all fronts. While he may have had some sort of mental illness such as megalomania or other narcissistic traits, I think he was just an asshole who preferred easy money. For most of his life, he'd never been actually accountable for anything. And well before Gaston Means was born, James Clark King left his boyhood home in Glover, Vermont for the state of Illinois. He was just 20 years old in 1850, 
and James didn't have much to his name except an industrious attitude and a knack for understanding business. Seven years later, as an unknown Abe Lincoln and Stephen Douglas debated on the political stages throughout the state of Illinois, the country was also running headlong toward the Civil War. James married Sarah Holbrook, and eventually the couple found themselves in Chicago. James became involved in the lumber industry, becoming a merchant. I've heard varying stories about his actual duties, but I did find a little bit of information that said that he was able to sort of set up a supply chain of raw lumber or timber. I think it's timber if it's cut down, right? Anyway, he kind of created a supply chain and bought a bunch of ships. They would ship in this timber on boats. It would be taken to lumber mills. And from my understanding is that he was very involved with the with the, the raw material that eventually came into the mills, sort of like a wholesaler, if you if you think about it that way. James was a go-getter, and it showed. Now, lumber was a fortunate industry to be tethered to when the Great Chicago Fire went out in 1871. The fire ravaged 18,000 buildings, and 100,000 people were left in dire need of lumber to rebuild their homes and businesses. And here it was that James King, a simple guy from Vermont, made a fortune. Now, while James did profit immensely, he did find satisfaction in philanthropic efforts. Sadly, Sarah died in 1886 at the age of 56. They'd been married for almost 30 years. James kept busy and continued to grow his empire. He made sound investments in railroad and infrastructure, and by 1894, he was the vice president of the Chicago City Railway. As he aged, the Midwest winters became a little intolerable for him, and what the hell, he preferred to spend the winter in Pasadena, California. He enjoyed the sunshine and admired the beauty of the so-called buds of society. James flattered the young ladies by sending bouquets of violets. This earned him the title the Violet King of Pasadena. James wasn't getting any younger, and in 1901, he filled out his last will and testament, and in it, he provided a sum to a woman named Maud Robinson, a pretty young thing from Morrison, Illinois. At this point, James had amassed an estate worth approximately $4 million, which is like $120 million today. He did pretty well, and eventually he wanted to marry Maud, or maybe he was just like, okay. It seems he was a little hesitant, and he made Maud sign a prenuptial agreement. The agreement was for Maud to receive $100,000 at the time of James's death, and that's added on to the $200,000 he had already given her for music training in Paris. On pleasantries aside, they married later that year in Michigan, despite the almost 40-year age difference. Now, the record shows this as the first marriage for both, but each had been married before. I saw a couple of reports that said... James had devised a plan to catch Maud's first husband cheating with a woman who James paid. And that would give Maud every reason to file for divorce. But honestly, I'm not buying it. It seems like a lot of work for a guy in his late 60s, early 70s, who in 1901 had enough foresight to know that a prenuptial agreement was probably in his best interest before marrying Miss Maud Robinson. I could be wrong. It's the feeling I get, but you know, 
I'm just saying. Sounds a little sketchy to me. All of a sudden, Maud found herself in the lap of luxury, and when James died on November 1st, 1905, she didn't seem too broken up about her loss. Just one week after her husband's funeral, the papers in Chicago reported that Maud would be contesting the will. And let me tell you, the will itself is an absolute masterpiece, and it's very clear on the beneficiaries in every aspect. James had no children and provided generously to his siblings as well as nieces and nephews. The remaining bulk of his estate was to be distributed to various charitable causes, most of which would go to a home for old men, and he wished it to be built and named after him, and then where the largest portion of the estate went was the perpetual funding of this home actually very interesting. And he never actually left an executor to his will. His philanthropic efforts were carried out by Northern Trust. So they were like the de facto executor of his estate. I guess you could think of it that way. So after everything was distributed and Maude got her 100000 it said that there was a remaining $2 million that went to the home for old men. This bunch of money was was intended to be invested wisely and cautiously to be able to grow the amount and, as it states, perpetually fund this Home for Old Men, which was in operation until the 80s. The original Home for Old Men was actually tore down in the 80s. And as a matter of fact, the James C. Clark Trust is part of the endowment of Presbyterian homes now, still to this day. Either way, the will was brilliant, and there was even a clause at the end that stated if any one person was to contest his last will, they would lose the right to bequeath anything at all. And this did not scare Maude at all. She wasn't deterred, and she did indeed contest the will and took it all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court. Eventually, Northern Trust settled with Maude for... $600,000 cash and another $400,000 in a trust. So a cool million dollars. Apparently, Northern Trust was willing to settle due to the fact that James actually did own some undisclosed property in California. So his estate was worth a little bit more. It was maybe alleged that he was trying to hide it from her. So to... Avoid any impropriety on that level, which was already getting harder and harder to avoid um, for the legacy of James King. (laughs) Yeah, so they just ended up settling with her. They're like, here, just take a million dollars and go the hell away. And she did. She's like, okay, bye. And she went and like did the damn thing. She gallivanted the globe and gambled and drank and partied and... She was a she was a real character, so she ended up getting followed around Europe by these fortune hunters who made victims out of rich American women or well, rich any women, rich anybody really. Maud loved to be loved, so any sort of affection was reciprocated with cash a lot of the time. In 1912, she returned to Chicago. She got a little bit sick of being pursued by the fortune hunters, and some even followed her back to the U.S., so it got a little messy. Maude's sister Maisie Melvin 
was exhausted from trying to keep Maud and her affairs in order. She was trying to keep Maud's money out of other people's hands 24-7, it seemed. And an acquaintance's husband named Gaston Means came along to lend his hand to sort and manage the affairs of this widow. I can just imagine Gaston sounding just like Foghorn Leghorn as he sold himself and his brand of management to an unsuspecting Maud. I'm not sure Maisie was as loyal as Maud believed she was. I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that Maisie was in on a lot of things that maybe weren't in Maud's best interest. Gaston Bullock Means was born in Concord, North Carolina in 1879, as far as I could find anyway. The Means family had been prominent in social and political circles for over 100 years in North Carolina. His father was an attorney and also had been the mayor of Concord for many years. Gaston's mother was an heiress with family ties to Theodore Roosevelt. Gaston and his brothers were notoriously mean around Concord. There was a tale that was recounted from Gaston's childhood. He talks about the glee he felt after stealing money from his mother and watching the housekeeper be fired over it. I picture a chubby boyish face and deeply dimpled cheeks a sneer of entitlement on his lips and his eyes dancing with excitement at the thought of easy money. He always wished to pursue a career in law, but he proved to be really lazy and ended up dropping out. He was a large man and he liked to be seen as strong, masculine, and generally a man's man. His laziness made this mostly an act, but his temper was likely the only time anyone ever saw Gaston's true nature. Every other facet of his personality or character was manufactured to exude authenticity, honesty, and transparency, none of which he possessed naturally. In 1900, Means became the superintendent of the graded schools in Abermarl, where he remained for two years. Meanwhile, his father had become an attorney for James W. Cannon, the textile entrepreneur. During his college summers, Means had worked in the Cannon Mills, and in 1902, he joined the firm as a salesman. He traveled a great deal for the firm, but he ultimately settled in New York. In 1909, he apparently decided to beat feet to Chicago because he had a breach of promise suit brought against him by a former New York City girlfriend. Her name was Edith Catherine Poole. Means was not a fan of Chicago. He traveled to New York as often as possible. Now assigned to the Chicago office, Means was a great salesman by all accounts. Even though he often marked up the cost to appear, he was giving customers a real sweet deal. In 1913, he pursued a debutante named Julie Patterson. And Julie was a longtime acquaintance of Maud's sister Maisie. Julie and Gaston were married in 1913. Eventually, She introduced Gaston to Maisie in 1914. Julie and Gaston were invited to a dinner party, and Maude was just over the moon about Gaston. His charming southern accent, lively personality, and seemingly endless connections. Soon after meeting Maisie and Maude, Gaston claimed he resigned from his position at Cannon Mills. He'd been disrespected and hadn't been given credit for an idea that he pitched. Realistically, Cannon Mills fired him for an unwillingness to sell newer products, and I'm guessing that that's probably not even really what happened. 
They probably were onto a scam he'd been running behind the scenes and dropped him before they had any real damage done. Gaston saw New York City as better suited for his growing family and his long game. Gaston and Julie relocated to New York City within a matter of days. From her account, Gaston was only unemployed for two days. He immediately began working for William Burns Detective Agency. And he was an agent for the German government during World War I before the United States got involved with World War I. However, that was just his day job for the agency. He actually spent a lot of time looking into Maud's love interests, making sure that they were on the up and up, which none of them were. And I believe that, you know, it, between him and Maisie, the goal was to not allow Maud to remarry ever. Maisie hired Gaston to handle Maud's affairs, and this agreement put Gaston in charge of Maud's finances. Next thing you know, Julie and Gaston lived in the same apartment building as Maud and Maisie, and he not only investigated Maud's acquaintances and managed her affairs, Maud's money became his full-time job. Maud's power of attorney was held now by a greedy traitor who no doubt sounded like a cartoon rooster. I'm serious, you guys. I can just hear him saying, Miss King, I say, I say, your affairs will be looked after. It's difficult to summarize Gaston's level of double dealings and fraudulent schemes. He was a charlatan of the highest order. And in 1917, most of the world would see just how malevolent Gaston Means was. Means had taken the liberty and gambled Maude's remaining fortune in the stock market. And by 1917, Maude was broke, left barely with 10% of her inheritance. Through forgery and misrepresentation, Means was even able to dissolve Maude's trusts. I'm sure Gaston had intended on doing well in the stock market, repaying Maude's capital and keeping any profits for himself. Of course, that's not what happened, and he really began to panic. He needed a real permanent solution, and it didn't take long to formulate a plan. This seemed like a perfect time for a trip. So he planned a trip to his hometown for Maude and her family, as well as his very pregnant wife and young child. He obviously planned activities any socialite would love, like rabbit hunting. Yeah, rabbit hunting, because I'm sure if there's one thing Maude King was dying to try, it was fucking rabbit hunting. August 29th, 1917, a little after sundown, Gaston decided it would be a great idea to go take Maude and her new pistol for a little target practice. And I guess it seemed legit to Maude because she, Gaston, his brother Afton, and a one Captain Bingham drove to an area near a creek called Blackwelder Spring. Upon arriving, Afton and Bingham left Gaston and Maude uh, to go hunt some rabbits, apparently. All of a sudden, they heard a shot, and Gaston yelled for help. Maude had been shot, and according to Gaston, it was Maude who had accidentally shot herself. In his greatest role yet, Means dramatically wept as he recounted the series of events leading up to the widow shooting herself. He had placed Maude's new gun in the crotch of a tree nearby and went to get a drink from the spring. With his back turned, Maude had apparently grabbed the gun and dropped it? Some unnatural force caused the fatal bullet to be fired. There was an inquiry 
And the jury was like, hmm, sounds like you know what you're talking about. So accident it is. Maude's body was transported back to Chicago the day after her death. Maude was interred quickly and quietly. A resident of Concord sent telegrams to New York City and Chicago. The message was clear. There was something amiss in the death of the widow. Investigate immediately. Maude was exhumed, re-examined, and a forensic pathologist named Burmeister from Chicago made some very interesting discoveries. Upon examination of Maud's fatal injury, the examiner found that the bullet had entered behind Maud's left ear, and without powder burns or stippling, it was determined impossible for Maud to have shot herself in such a manner. Also, her ankle was broken. All of this determined Maud's death was a homicide. Word was sent to North Carolina's attorney general to put out a warrant for means and indict him on murder charges. The case was passed to Hayden Clement, district solicitor, and former classmate of Means, both men Tar Heels from the University of North Carolina. Only one had graduated, though, and it wasn't Gaston. The residents of Concord had their minds made up. This witch hunt of their prodigal son by some damn Yankees was absurd. It was clearly an accident, and the motive made no sense. The defense argued, Gaston? Kill the goose who laid the golden eggs? Preposterous. This doubt creeped through the jury pool as if it wasn't already tainted. Means' defense team was filled with prominent members of the North Carolina Bar. The prosecution's motion for a change of venue was nearly laughed out of court. The judge ruled that there was no issue in receiving a fair trial right here in Cabarrus County, so that's where the trial of Gaston Means was held, in a county where his prominent family had been shaping the policies, laws, and serving in political positions for over a hundred years. One of his great-grandfathers even served as governor, quite literally a home court advantage. Oh, but what nobody had known until Maud caught a ride on that long black train was not only was Gaston's intent to hide the balance of her books, but he had also claimed to have found a second will of James King, one that was dated just the month before his death in 1905. And we'll talk about that in part two. So don't forget to like, subscribe, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and leave me a review. Until then, bye!